We are in a series in Revelation, and we've talked about the book of Revelation. It's an unusual book. There's no other book like it in the Bible. Um, Go back and listen to those messages to hear more about that. But one of the points that we made in our first time together is as uh, the scene in heaven opens up in Revelation chapter 4, there is a throne in the center of heaven, in the center of the universe. And the question that we asked that first week is, who sits on that throne? And the answer we said was God. Good. Do we need to go over that again? No. Are you guys enthusiastic? All right. So who sits on that throne? It is God. That's right. And that means it's not me. That means it's not lots of things that the world wants to put up onto the throne. It means that constantly we're reminding ourselves, you know what, there is a throne in the center of the universe. I don't occupy it. Nothing else occupies it. God alone occupies it. And that actually becomes the most important foundation for our life, is understanding in every decision we make, every priority we set, everything that we do, God sits on the throne in the center of the universe. And whether we want to acknowledge it right now as we go through our life, uh, or we're going to wait, there will come a day where that is absolutely clear. God sits on the throne. Then last week, we talked about this, this annoying habit that we all have called sin. And that worship, actually, is an antidote to sin. When we ascribe worth to the right things, it changes our heart... And then we do different things. So if we ascribe worth to God, it changes our heart toward God, and it helps us not to do the things that rebel from God. And we just said, so many of us focus on sin as, I'm not going to do it, I'm going to focus, I'm going to be really disciplined. And yet worship really is the way to do it, because worship actually changes our heart, and from our heart flows the issues of life. So we talked about that last week. And that brings us to this week, and uh, I have a question for you, a very important question. How many of you are college football fans? Okay. How many of you are USC fans? Wow, more of you are USC fans than college football fans. Okay. But if I was to change that and say, I don't mean the USC on the West Coast, I mean the University of South Carolina. How many of you would say, I am fans of that team? Wow. Well, that's pretty cool. I thought we'd get a big zero except for Jairus. So um, I want to show you something that is very cool that happened there. Two years ago, Alabama was coming in to play us, and they were undefeated, ranked number one in the country, and South Carolina had never beat a number one team. And so I want to show you just a little scene that occurred before the opening kickoff. Watch this. say anything about Trojan fans, but you've never done that, okay? You've never done that. If, if there's anything we know how to do in South Carolina, it is cheer for our football team. And why I bring that up is because they're doing something that you wouldn't normally ascribe to that, those 80,000 people. They are worshiping. Because worship 
is not a religious experience. It's not just a Christian thing. Worship is any time you ascribe worth to something. That's what it means, literally. Worship means to ascribe worth, to devote yourself, to make sacrifices, to respond to what's happened. It's to be all in. That's what worship is. And in that scene, you have sort of this idea of this worship. In fact, did you see the little picture of me in the middle of the field there? Yeah, did you see? That wasn't photoshopped in either. I had, for a few games, the privilege of being standing in the center of the field at that moment of the game. And I'll tell you later why I'd be out there. But uh, anyway, it was an amazing thing. And we learn a lot about worship, actually, by looking at worship happening in other settings. Because for some reason, we think worship is just what we do in church, but it's not. Worship is any time we ascribe worth, any time that we, we sort of... Uh, exalt something or we, we say, this is worth it. This is worth my time and energy and all of the things that are important to me are worth giving to this pursuit, worth giving to this thing or this person. And so in Revelation chapter 4, we open up this scene where John is looking into heaven and he's seeing a worship experience. Basically, he's watching a throne room, which is just the room where the king was. He's watching a throne room and he's seeing all this amazing worship take place. Now, here's what I want to do. I want us to go back to the book of Romans, Romans 12. You don't need to turn there. I'll bring it up on the screen. I want you to stay in Revelation chapter 4. But in Romans 12, 1 and 2, we have two of the most famous verses in the New Testament, and it's actually talking about worship. What is worship? So in Romans 12, 1, 2, it says, uh, or 12, 1, it says this. Uh, let's read it together. It's up on the screen. It says... Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, sometimes when we look at that, we don't understand what the verse is about, but it's really clued in right at the end. It says, let me tell you about true and proper worship. If you want to know how to worship the correct way, let me tell you what's involved in that. And there's basically three things this verse goes through that says, when you do it right, when worship is true and proper, these three things are going to happen. The first one, it says, is uh, it's a response. In other words, it's uh, in view of God's mercies. We worship in view of God's mercies. And what Paul has done here is uh, what precedes Romans 12? The answer is Romans 1 through 11. Okay? And Romans 1 through 11 is one of the strongest statements in the Bible, really sort of this running commentary on everything God has done for us starting with the fact that we've rebelled from him, starting from the fact that we've turned away, starting from the fact that we deserve judgment, going all the way through saying, listen, here's what God has done, and here's what Jesus has done in light of his love for us, and he's died as a sacrifice in our place, and so while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it continues to move through, and it talks about there's nothing that could ever separate us from the love of God, that he's locked on to us, and it's not our faithfulness to him, it's his faithfulness to us, that he's pulling us toward him constantly. Then it even says even more outrageous things, like you've been adopted into the family. It's as if God can't get close enough to you. He's going to say, listen, I'm going to adopt you. And all the privileges that my, my, my natural son, Jesus, has, all the privileges that come to him are coming to you too. 
And so what Paul does is he goes through this litany of things of what God is pouring out toward us, the mercies of God. And so then he makes this turning point in chapter 12, starting with the word therefore, because of all of God's mercies, therefore, and now he's going to give, here is the proper response. And it has to do with worship. The true and proper worship is the right response. So the first thing you see is this response. And if you look in Revelation chapter 4, we see the same thing as uh, all these created beings, the angels and the church and all the things in creation are circling around the throne and giving worship. And we see that it's in response. It's in response to who God is. And so... Look down. You guys have your Bibles, right? Okay, this isn't coming up on here, so this is a little back and forth here. Uh, in Revelation 4.3, we get a description of God, and how is God described? Throw out some of the words that you're seeing there. Jasper. Jasper represents God's holiness. What else? All right, Cornelian, which is also, any of you have ruby in there? I like ruby better, easier word to say. Same thing. Ruby, red. Judgment, God's judgment, and then finally you have this other image of, of a rainbow. What does a rainbow remind you of? What character? Noah. And what did God do when he sent the rainbow? He said, I will never flood the world again. I'll never destroy the world in this kind of a way. You will see God's mercy. And so we see actually in the throne room that day that God presents himself in a way that people are responding to it. They're saying, oh my gosh, God is holy and majestic. God brings judgment and he makes things right and he's just. But thank the Lord that he's also merciful, that he's a rainbow, that there's this idea of you can be forgiven. And so there's this response that everybody in the room, everybody around the throne gives because of that. Then we also look in uh, chapter 5, Verse, what, six, and we have a description of Jesus. And what is the description of Jesus in chapter five, verse six? He is a lamb that is slain. And remember, we talked about that. That's not a pretty picture. Lambs that were slain, that was part of the Jewish sacrificial system. The way they would slay a lamb is what would they slit? The throat. It was gruesome. It was bloody. It was to remind people sin is bad. It causes death. There is pain in sin. And there must be a sacrifice that is made. And the interesting thing about the book of Revelation, because it's the consummation of history, it's where God makes all things right. The power of God is seen in Revelation like nothing else. The character that carries it out is the slain lamb. It is by virtue of the fact that Jesus has made this incredible sacrifice on our behalf that all of this power comes out of God and he righteously judges the world because he says, listen, nobody paid more of a price than I paid and my death has opened the door to anyone that wants to come. And if people still choose to push against me, if people still choose to rebel in the light of all that's been done, now I stand with perfect justice to bring down judgment on what's happening. And so we get this amazing picture, and these are the images on this throne that we worship. It's a response to all of who God is. So worship is a response. But we also see that worship is active, and we see that in Revelation, uh, well, actually in the Romans passage, it says that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And the idea of saying a body is to say it is not just something you do in church. It's not just a spiritual thing you do. 
body represents all of who you are. And so God comes to you and he says, listen, I want you to give all of who you are to me. Not just the time that you're in church. Not just the time that you pray, you know, before a meal. Not just when you're tucking your kids in. All of your time is mine. Everything you do is mine. Everything is an opportunity to worship me. Everything is a time to say, this is for you, God. This isn't just for me. This is for you. And so we have these very active verbs in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation. You have words like they are singing, or they are saying, or they are flying around, or they are praising, or they are falling down before God. You have these amazing activities that are accompanying the worship. Worship, listen, worship is never meant to be passive. Worship is never a receiving, not worship. It's in view of God's mercy. Listen, we receive tons when God gives us his mercy. Worship is our response to it. Worship is our activity to it. Worship is, okay, you've done all this for me. I can't shut my mouth. I've got to do this for you. Okay, you've done all this for me. I can't do anything different. I'm doing this for you. Worship is our response. It's our activity. It is always going toward God. It is the part that we play in this relationship with God. We worship him in response, and it's active. And then the final thing is, and this is the part we don't like, this is the part I don't like, is that it's a sacrifice. And uh, sacrifice is kind of an interesting word. We have times where we give an offering to God, and then there's times where we have to give a sacrifice to God. And let me tell you the difference. You guys have heard the story of the chicken and the pig who are going to present breakfast. And the pig said to the chicken, for you, this is just an offering of a day's work. And this was scrambled eggs and bacon. And the pig said, this is a major sacrifice for me. And you know, it's really true. Unless it hurts us, unless there's something that pushes back against us. I told that joke so bad. I am so sorry. That is actually kind of a funny joke. But anyway, it's all right. We're all good. I told you you're going to have to work with me. And you didn't help me out a lot there, okay? So, all right, we'll, you'll have another opportunity. All right, so here's the idea, though. A sacrifice always costs us something. It's something that's not comfortable. You know, if we're always seeking for comfort and what's in it for me, that is not sacrifice. And very clearly here, Paul teaches us to worship. A true and proper worship means there is going to be sacrifice. There are going to be times where you're going down a track. Listen, this is kind of the most important thing, so... Tune in here. You're going to go down a track. And there's going to be the thing you could do for you, which all of us face, and all of us naturally lean toward, right? We're going down a track. I could do this for me. And occasionally, we're going to go down that track, and Jesus is going to say, or you could do this for me. And they aren't the same thing this time. This time to do something for me is going to mean you're not going to do it for you. And the point that Paul is making here is that worship is when we say, okay, that's a sacrifice. That's going to cost me something. That's not what I would naturally do. I'm actually really uncomfortable moving in that direction. This is not my idea of a good time. But because of everything you've done for me, because of all of the mercies, this time, 
I'm going with what you want. I'm going to do what you tell me. We're going to talk a little bit more about that, specifically what that means. Huge, huge point, because that's sacrifice. We throw around that word really easily, but the, the reality of it is there's a lot of pain in sacrifice. There's a lot of discomfort in sacrifice. You don't get to sacrifice without pain and discomfort, right? You just don't. And one of the things we're being told is in a regular way, we make sacrifices for God. It's not what's best for us. It's what's best for Jesus. And we do it simply because of that. Does that make sense? Okay, hard, right? Okay, we'll, we'll, we're going to stick in the knife and twist it in a little bit, okay? So you're ready for that? Oh, yeah, you love this stuff. So let me show you something that's really cool that comes out of Revelation 4.10 about the sacrifice idea. In 4.10, let's read this together because there's two things in this passage that are really fascinating to me. The first one, let, let's read it first. It says, They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God. Wait a second. Okay, I'm messing this up, and you guys aren't into this. All right, let's stand, because this is really an incredible statement about Jesus. Okay, we're going to pick it up right where you are worthy, okay? Are we all together here? Yeah. All right, okay. I could do Penelope again. But you don't want that. All right, here we go. Let's, let's say this together. And let's say it like we mean it, okay? You are, started with you are worthy. All right, here we go. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Okay, you can have a seat. Yeah, cool statement. Let me tell you two things about it. Uh, what's happening at this time is there's this group called the 24 elders who we had talked about before. Do you remember the 24 elders represent, do you remember? 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, which represents all of God's people, right? Okay, so there's this amazing uh, vision where basically uh, the 24 elders that represent God's people have these crowns that God has given them. And the idea of the crowns is they have done things that have really been pretty incredible during their life. And God has said, wow, well done, well done. And they get a little crown. So they love in a situation that's difficult to love in. Or they serve God in a way in a really humble kind of a thing. Or they really make an effort to do something God wants and they're successful. And God says, well done. And they get a crown. But then there's this amazing scene that they have the crowns. They take off the crown and they throw it to the foot of the throne, to the one that's on the throne. And what this is saying basically is, yes, you're right. I did something that was sort of cool, but let me just be super clear because I understand the only reason I pulled this off is because what you did for me. This was just a response. And so in a great act of humility and really an act of sacrifice, they take these things that sort of they've earned and they say, no, it's not about me. God, it's about you. I throw the crown back down to your feet. So there's sort of this amazing sacrificial stand. But the other thing that is so subtle but so powerful about this that we could never, ever get is the phrase that they say that we just read, this really powerful statement about who God is and what we do with him was an act of civil disobedience. In other words, it cost them something to say what we just read. 
So you know what? Yeah, leave this up for a little bit because I want to come back to this. But let me just tell you what's happening at the end of the first century for the Christians that are saying this, for John who's writing it and the Christians that are saying this. There was, uh, there, in, in Rome, there were the Caesars, and the Caesars were the kings. It was the title of the king. And they had several of them that went along. And generally, they got worse and worse and worse where it came to Christians. In other words, they were fairly tolerant beginning with Christianity. They saw it as just this little branch of Judaism. Don't bother them. They won't bother us. But as Christianity spread around the world, and it spread very quickly, and it was very powerful, Rome became threatened by it, and the Caesars started to push hard against it. During this time also, though, the Caesars started to exalt themselves more and more. And so they started to say things like, we are like God on earth. We are people that should be worshipped. We are actually, we're deity. We're deity. We come and we're deity. And there was this um, imperial cult worship, basically, that was occurring. And it was happening all around the Roman world, which stretched all the way from Europe to India. Huge amount of people. And they were basically told, you will worship the Caesar." And the worst of the whole lot was a guy named Domitian. Domitian was alive and well and was ruling when John was writing Revelation. And Domitian took it to a whole new level of what it meant to worship him. So he would say, for instance, if you want to be able to sell and buy things uh, in the Agora, which was the marketplace in Ephesus, which is one of the places this letter goes to, the church of Ephesus, he said, if you want to buy and sell, you need to offer incense to me. And when you offer incense to me, you will get a mark on your hand or your forehead. And it will signify that you have offered worship to me. So now you can buy and sell in the Agora. Sort of an interesting thing. Domitian had a nickname. He was called the Beast. And so when you read through Revelation, you need to understand these things had real meanings to the people that were getting this. They weren't just symbolic gobbledygook for us to try and figure out 2,000 years later. They had real meanings to the people. So taking the mark of the beast was a very literal thing. People understood you don't get the mark. You don't get to buy and sell in the marketplace. That is bad for your family. He would also say, I have certain names, and there are certain things that you should ascribe to me, certain amounts of worth. And so let me read to you a hymn. Let me read to you a hymn that they uh, sang about Domitian in the empire. This was this imperial cult worship. And the hymn goes like this. It says, and so you got this. Just sort of see if there's any comparison. Greater are you, uh, our Lord and God. Worthy are you to receive honor and glory and power. Worthy are you, Lord of the earth, to inherit the kingdom. You are Lord of all the earth. This is what had to be said about Domitian if you wanted to operate in any Roman territory. To not do that or to ascribe that kind of worth to someone else was such an act of civil disobedience that it could result in your death. It was that significant. Domitian went around and he had people calling him Lord and God. Even his wife had to call him 
Lord and God. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Being married to a guy that says, that's the way you'll address me. Uh, you know, occasionally I get into bed with Julie and my feet are cold and I touch her feet and she goes, oh, Lord. And I say, you know what? In the privacy of our own bedroom, you don't have to call me that. You can just call me Kevin. <laughs> well, here was this guy. Here was this guy that... Uh, here was this guy that really, he was so full of himself. But the reality is, it had created this environment where people had to make a very strong, powerful, non-compromising decision. Am I going to put Jesus on the throne and ascribe this kind of worth to him, even mimicking the words that were used for Domitian? Or am I going to compromise in some way and say, listen, God will know in my heart that I don't really mean it. But I need to do this for my family. I can't buy or sell unless I do something like this. I mean, if I die, who's going to take care of my kids? I've got to take care of this. And so John is pushing the people in the church to say, listen, there is only one throne in the center of the universe. And guess what? Guess who's not on it? Domitian's not on it. There's only one. Jesus is on that. And we need to ascribe worth to him. So you start to see that this idea of worshiping back to that crowd that's getting the book of Revelation is not just sort of a passive thing they do at the end of a service, just sort of to wrap things up, and they're thinking about a million different things, and it's just sort of like, well, we'll just do it. It was this idea of, listen, when we give worship like this, this is a huge sacrifice. This is, this is where, you know, this is our time. This is really intense. This really makes a difference. I am making a stand for Jesus when it would be way easier to just make a stand for myself and do what I want to do. But that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a stand for Jesus. And it may cost me a lot, but he's worth it. In view of everything he's done for me, he's worth it. Now, take that thought, and I want to look at one other thing as we uh, sort of move through this, because I want this to get really practical. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus is going to teach a super powerful truth to the disciples that connects with this idea. So if you have your Bibles, go to Mark chapter 8, and let me describe what's happening here as Jesus is with the guys. Uh, he is moving toward Jerusalem, and uh, he has just done this healing that was kind of a weird healing. It was like a two-parter. Like, he, he did it the first time, and it didn't totally take. This guy was blind, and it didn't totally cure his blindness, and then he had to do it again, and then the guy could see clearly. So it's no other miracles like that. We don't know why it was like that, but that happens. But the crowds are amazed again. He's getting a huge following. There's a lot of momentum moving. And then he just takes the disciples aside, and he says, who are people saying that I am? And Peter steps up, because he's always the one that steps up, and this time he gets it right. Peter so rarely gets it right that it's great that there's one story where he gets it right. And so Jesus says, who do people say that I am? People say, well, Elijah or one of the prophets or something like that. And then Peter says, no, you are the Messiah. You are the promised one. You are the one that's going to bring us all back to God. And Jesus says, you're exactly right. Great statement. Bingo. You win, Peter. That's perfect. Then Jesus goes on to say something else that is really strange and you can see in the way that Peter reacts that he thinks it's strange. And when we think about it, it feels sort of strange. Because what you've got to picture is there's a lot of momentum for Jesus at this point. There's a lot of positive things happening. There's a lot of the crowd that's saying, hey, we've got to have this guy as our king. He is amazing. He can heal people. He's a great teacher. He's just amazing. So there's all this momentum. And then Jesus says these things. 
In verse 31, he says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And so Peter, who has just gotten everything right, listen to what Peter does. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And I'm just saying, anytime you find yourself in a position that you're rebuking Jesus, you're not in the right place, okay? So Peter's just like, Peter, wake up. So here's what Peter's saying. He's saying, listen, Jesus, let me just tell you, you know, I've done a little marketing here. Going negative at this point is not in our best interest. We have a really positive message. There's a lot of people that are really experiencing a lot of cool things. They're getting a lot out of this. We've really got some momentum here. For you all of a sudden to talk about suffering and you know, all these things are going to happen to you and you're going to be turned over and you're going to die and all these things. That is just not the way to get the crowd fired up. So if you want to keep the crowd fired up, you've got to knock this off. You've got to stop this. And here's really what Peter's saying, because it's not just about Jesus. Peter has gone on the coattails of Jesus. All the disciples have. So as Jesus is getting a lot of publicity, as Jesus is being venerated, as people are coming to him and they can't get to him, who do they turn to? They turn to the disciples. And so they're going up to Peter and saying, hey, you know, give this message to Jesus. Or, you know, Peter gets to be part of the miracle working team. So that's kind of a cool thing. And people, you know, it's a cool ride. They're all getting a lot out of it. And so Peter's not just saying, Jesus, don't go negative about yourself. He's saying, don't go negative about anything because it falls back onto us. And we've got a good thing happening here. So now Jesus is going to respond to Peter. And again, um, some of us are familiar, or maybe, you know, just because it was written so long ago, we don't understand how shocking this statement would have been. But this was a very shocking statement that Jesus makes to Peter. He says, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And here's really what Jesus is saying. Peter, when I first met you, you were a fisherman down on your luck. You had been out in the lake the whole night. You had not gotten one thing. You're you're doing your job lousy. It wasn't working. And I came up to you on the beach and I got your attention by just saying, hey, have you caught any fish? No, I haven't caught any fish. Why don't you throw your net on the other side of the boat? It's like, throw our net on the other side of the boat like the fish can tell about that. Why don't you just do it? He does it and all of a sudden this huge catch comes in. Just this huge catch. It almost sinks the boat. And that gets Peter's attention. And Peter makes a decision. You know what? Hanging with Jesus is a good thing for me. It's a good thing to be around Jesus. Look at this. Look at all the things that might come my way if I hang out with Jesus. Any person that can tell the fish to come into the net, that's a good person to be around. And so Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, there was a day where the reason you came to me was because of what you could get. The things that you would get out of it. There would be some good things that would come your way if you do that. And sometimes in the church... Um, we rebuke people for coming to church because there's good in it for them. We're sort of like, well, if you're really mature, you wouldn't do that. If you're really godly, you wouldn't care about that. But you know what? Jesus did it himself. And in fact, if you look at how the Bible's laid out in the Old Testament, so many of those laws, so many of the things that are set up are just to instruct people how to live life better. 
I mean, the law basically was to tell people, if you want to step into the life that God has for you in this world, then you'll follow the law. The law brings life. Now, when you can't keep the law, then it also brings death. But the idea of the law was to help you out. When Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount isn't meant to be just sort of all these hoops to jump through. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' description of, if you want life in this world, then here's the way that you act. Here's the things that you do. Wise are you. You're like a man that builds his house on a strong foundation. If you follow these things, your life will be better. So there's no question that there is a consumer aspect to coming to Jesus. And Jesus plays on it at times. He says, absolutely. There is a lot of good that comes your way. And even outside of operation in this world, I will give you salvation. I will give you a hope for the future. I will connect you with your heavenly father. I mean, there's all kinds of good things that come. So the fact that Peter is a user at this point, that he's concerned about himself, probably is not a huge surprise. But here's what Jesus is going to say, and here's what he says to us. There is more than that. It isn't just what you get out of it. What you get out of it is significant, and I'm a God that loves to give, and I'd love to give you these things. But that's not the whole story. You can't just be a consumer and get everything that God wants you to have. Because he also calls us to be a follower. And being a follower means I'm changing my perspective. It is not me that sits on the throne. It is Jesus that sits on the throne. He's the one that deserves the worship. He is worthy of it. It's not about me. It's about him. So Jesus now has caught this teaching moment because everyone is just shocked with this surprising statement, get behind me, Satan. And so uh, Jesus calls the crowd to himself along with his disciples. In other words, he's going to teach everybody this truth. And he makes this statement. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And it's interesting because for us, a cross for most of us, is something we see in church or something that we wear around our neck. It's a piece of jewelry. In that day, there was nothing glamorous, nothing romantic, nothing appealing about a cross. The cross meant one thing, a gruesome death. People that carried their cross never came back. To be assigned to carry the cross meant you were giving the ultimate, you know, the ultimate penalty. There was nothing romantic about a cross. We read this and we're like, oh yeah, pick up your cross and follow me. That's like having a cross around your neck. It's not like having a cross around your neck. It's like saying, I will do anything you say, even to the point of sacrificing my life. That's what that statement is. So you need to deny yourself, pick up your cross. Now that sounds very negative, but Jesus goes on to explain it. He says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. So let me ask you a question. How many of you would like to save your life? Okay, okay, good. I, I would hope most of us would like to do that. And if you wonder about that, uh, you can just answer the question, how many of you have ever gone to a doctor? Okay, how many of you, you know, like know your cardiologist by name? Okay. You know, how many of you, like, eat food so that you can, or you do some form of exercise? How many of you are breathing right now? Okay, these are all, you know why you, you only breathe for one reason. You're trying to keep your life. You know, that's really the only upside of breathing is it, it allows you to keep your life going. 
We all want to save our life. That is a general thing that everybody wants to do. We want to save our life. But then Jesus makes a statement that, again, if we reflect on it, it's like, oh, yeah. It's like, so everybody that wants to save their life, here's some news for you. You're going to lose it. You know, last time we checked, death bats a thousand. Nobody makes it through this life and just keeps living. Everybody who wants to save their life is going to lose it. So he sets that as a foundational statement so people will listen. But then he makes this other statement. He says, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. So now Jesus is giving it out. He said, there is a way to save your life, but it's in such a way that you would never think that this is true. But he says, basically, if you'll do this, if you will serve me, if you will deny yourself, if you will put me first, there actually is a way for you to save your life. And now Jesus is going to open up a concept uh, that was, was fuzzy to Jews back then, um, is clear to us but is the idea that there's an afterlife. There is another life. There's not just one life, and that's what he's playing off of. He says, listen, we think that this life is all there is. We live as if this life is all there is. We think that being ahead in this life is all that means anything. And Jesus says, it isn't so, because there's another life that is coming, and actually a life that you've actually started at this point one way or another, and that life's going to go a lot longer and be much more important to you. And so what he's making the point is here, he says, if you try to hold on to this life... Here's the bad news. No matter how tightly you grip it and the things in this life, you're going to lose them. There's no way you can keep them. At one point, you will lose it. He said, but there is a way to grab this larger thing called life that you'll actually be able to save. You'll actually be able to step into and to be able to keep. So he says this, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? So here's what Jesus is saying, and I don't know what it would have been in their mind back then, but I can picture it from my mind right now. Picture the perfect life. House on the beach, Jaguar convertible, you know, perfect shape, hot body, you know, success in your business, lots of money, shaved head, all the things that you would think. Yes, if I had that, my life would be perfect, just perfect. And here's the point that Jesus says. He says, would you give your soul for that? Would you give this thing that's, that's eternal, the only eternal part of you, would you give that to get something that's perfect in this world or maybe the whole package? And all of a sudden we start to say, okay, so you're saying that I've got a decision to make here. Because then he says these words. He says, or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? In other words, let's say that you had all these things. Let's say you had the, the things you wanted. Would you give any one of those, or maybe all of them, to make sure that your soul was going to be okay in the life to come? And the answer, of course, is yes. You'd be a fool not to. I mean, having some good things here is great, but if it's a trade-off of some good things here and losing my soul for eternity, there's just, there's just no question on what the wise thing here to do is. There's just no question about it. Of course, I would trade anything in this world to make sure my soul's going to be okay, that things are going to be just the way they should be. And so Jesus sort of pitches it this way. And here is the point that he makes. He says, decisions will come your way. 
And you have to decide, am I choosing stuff in this life? Am I choosing the things that just make me feel better and make me happier and I'm more comfortable and it gives me prestige and all the things that fill me up in some kind of way? If I'm going to pursue that with the exclusion of saying, and Jesus, you know what, you can get the leftovers. You know, if, if anything comes your way, that's great. Jesus says, no, there comes a time where being a consumer is not the right way to go. There comes a time in everybody's life who, who, who claims me in any way where a decision is going to have to be made. And I'm either going to have to choose my life and the things that I want in my life, or Jesus is going to pick it up in a way of saying, or you can choose me. You cannot hold on to both at this point. You're going to have to make a decision. And that's what he says at the end of this. He says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And what he's saying basically is he's saying, this world puts you in a situation. Uh, and maybe you can say, Jesus puts you in a situation. You're going to have to make a choice. It's either what I get in this world or it's what Jesus wants, but I can't hold on to both at the same time. And here's what Jesus said. You are no fool to give over what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. The decision, when it's put in those terms, is obvious for us. And here's what worship is. Worship is any time we make this choice for Jesus. Any time. That's the sacrificial part of worship. Any time something comes across your desk and you think, you know what? I could do what I just would naturally do and what I want to do, and this makes me feel good, and I want to move in this direction. But here's a situation where Jesus says, but to follow me in this case, to put me first, means you're going to have to say no to that. You're going to have to deny that. This time you need to go with me. This time you won't take the mark of the beast. This time you're going to swear allegiance to me, and I know that it's going to cost you but there's something very good when you do that. There's something very right when you do that. And let me just make it clear. They are not always at odds with each other. It doesn't mean that you walk away from every comfort or everything that you want to do. But you know, you know, there are times, you know there are times where there's a decision to be made. Will you offer your body as a living sacrifice in that moment? Is it a relationship you need to let go of? Maybe it's a relationship you need to start. Is it something at work that you know is a compromise? Yet the whole industry does it this way. Yet the people in your office expect you to do it this way. But you know, you know, you can't hold on to both at this point. Jesus has made it clear. Is it someone you need to share your faith with? And they intimidate you or you're worried about rejection. And you just, but, but Jesus has made it so clear and put that person in your life because you are the one person that can give them light and introduce them to Jesus. And you've been so worried and so nervous, and you go, there's nothing in it for me. And Jesus says, I know. It's all about me this time. What hits you when you think 
about this decision because here is worship. Worship is never for us. It is always that choice. It's always for Jesus. And sometimes the decisions are hard and sometimes it costs us a lot and sometimes it means picking up our cross and saying, I'll do anything for you. And Jesus just says, that's a very, very good place to be. Uh, when I was in Haiti a few weeks ago, uh, we went to the worship service there. And uh, their church meets outside, basically, has a tarp over four by four. It's about four or 500 people cram into this, this little place. And uh, it's hot there. I mean, the humidity is 100%. And it's even at like nine in the morning, it's like 85, 90 degrees. They dress up for church. They are dressed, I mean, they are suits, ties, long dresses, hats, all the things. No cars there. All of them walk. Some of them walk for miles to make it to the worship service. And when they get there, their worship service goes like two and a half to three hours. They don't have one choir while we were there, and we couldn't even stay for the whole time because we had to catch our plane, they had three different choirs get up, different groups of people that were singing. That whole church, and, and they speak a language I don't know, but that church knows how to worship. Because let me tell you, they have got a tough life there. Haiti today is like the toughest place you could live. It is a hard place to live. And they are the minority. Christians, evangelical Christians in Haiti are the minority. And, the, and it is not a safe thing to be a Christian there in the way that they share their faith. And when they come together to worship, I'm telling you, they hold nothing back. I mean, these are people that stand and raise their hands and jump up and down and cry and their choirs are singing all over the place and the guys are preaching and, you know, I can't even tell what they're saying, but I'm like, whoa, this is worship. This is amazing. This is intense. This is like a South Carolina football game. They are into it. And it's because they understand this truth. There's a world that's coming and it's going to blow this world away. And their thought is one thing. I am positioning myself for that world because that's what matters. And when we worship, let me just make this really clear. I know for a lot of you, you're sort of like, well, I'm not into the worship thing. I come for the teaching and all that kind of stuff. And I love it that you come for the teaching. I'm a teacher. I like that. But the teaching is a lot of, hey, what's in it for me? What am I going to learn? What's going to be practical for this life? How can I do it? Those are great things. Jesus doesn't hold back. He teaches us a lot. Worship is our chance to give back to him. There is nothing in worship except for us to give back to him. And so this time that we're going to take right now, band, get out here. This time that we're going to take right now where we worship, where we're going to do this, I'm telling you, this is our chance. This is our chance to worship, to say there's nothing in it for me. This is all about you. This is for you. This is, this is me saying I'm making my choice right here. I can go my way and I can go your way and when they compete with each other, I'm going your way. That's what I'm saying when I worship right now. That's what I'm declaring. So if you'll stand right now and I want to pray for us and then I'd love us to have the next few minutes 
of just no thought in our mind other than, Jesus, this is for you. This is for everything you have done for me. Lord, we pray right now that you will accept our worship as living sacrifices, our true and proper worship for you, to honor you with all that we are, to thank you for all that you do. And right now, there's nothing in this for us. This is simply for you. This is your time for us to bless you. So accept our worship, Jesus. May this bring a smile 